This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm chatting to Keith Abel, founder of Abel & Cole. After failing his bar exams, Keith started his entrepreneurial journey as a salesman selling potatoes door to door, where a chance encounter led him to discovering organic vegetables. At a time where everything grown was covered in chemicals, Keith quickly realised people would pay more for organic chemical-free produce, and so Abel & Cole was born over 30 years ago. His business went from strength to strength amongst the huge ups and downs, but his clever marketing ideas, a genius tone of voice, impeccable service and beautiful wonky vegetables has now made Abel & Cole into a household name with an ever-growing subscription base. I had the complete pleasure of meeting Keith at Freddy's Flowers HQ, where he's now an investor and mentor. We sat down with our cup of organic tea and I belly laughed over the wonderful anecdotes, his honest and truthful accounts of his business journey and his inspiring words of wisdom from the 30 years he's been in business. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration Back in 2006 I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table And since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses And I believe that having a business doing what you love Is the key to a happy, fulfilled life my dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Keith. It's so lovely to be sat here with you today. We met many years ago, we were just talking about that, in lovely Richmond, and we had this lunch, and you thought I was a bit of a weirdo, but I remember what I ate and the fact that I belly laughed for an hour. But I'm really glad to be sat opposite you again today. We're actually at Freddie's Flowers HQ as you're an investor. And I know that the listeners of this podcast will remember Freddie's story where he says he was a delivery driver for Abel and & Cole. And that's how he got the idea for his subscription boxes. And not, and not a very good one. He wasn't a very good driver. No, terrible. Absolutely oh my terrible. God, I love that. But I know you're very good <laughs> friends now. Yeah. And even though he wasn't a great driver, he is certainly doing something very, very special. And I couldn't also wait to interview you today because, as you know, huge fan of what you built. Um, my sister was desperate to come today with me because she is your biggest fan. Bores me senseless about her vegetables every single week. Wonky this and the big leaf that. And I have to listen to the whole thing. And I had a nice purple sweet potato soup the other day that she made from the organic fruit and vegetables and the nerd that she has now become. Thanks to Abel and Cole. Brilliant. So thanks for that. That's okay. So there is so much I just want to talk to you about this business that you dreamt up. Can I just use the pun? Let us begin yeah yeah it's good isn't it yeah. it's pretty great I, sorry about that i wanted to start with the story of abel and cole back in 1988 over 30 years ago you're not to feel old but that's a long time ago now and it, it, it would be amazing to hear from you how that journey started um well in 1986 i think no it's a bit earlier about 84 
I went to Kenya with a couple of friends on holiday. And in those days, you used to get a grant check at university. And I spent my grant check before the beginning of term. <laughs> and so I didn't have any money. And so I got a Saturday job with my mate, Paul Cole, working for a chap called Gilchrist in Leeds, selling potatoes door to door. And I had a bit of experience as a door-to-door salesman because at the age 16, I'd sold fire extinguishers door-to-door and I'd actually had training from a really great fire extinguisher salesman. (laughs) You had to do a demonstration, Holly, which consisted of basically putting down a newspaper, spraying it with lighter fluid, setting fire to it in their house and then saying, you know, what would you do if this happened in your house? And then pull out the UT, you'd be really pleased if you had one of these. And uh, I'll never forget, after my training, I went into New Bond Street, into a shoe shop, spoke to the manager, put the newspaper down, sprayed petrol over it. To this absolute horror, I set a fire to it. I grabbed my fire extinguisher and it had run out. Oh, my God. I mean, I was 16. It was just one of those moments that regularly come to me where I just wanted to dig a large hole and climb into it. And um, four customers in the shop saw me <laughs> virtually in tears and bought fire extinguishers from me. Oh, my. So power. I made it, you know, anyway. So I was very good at selling potatoes door to door. I told this chap, Gilchrist, that I would be his best door to door salesman that he ever had, basically because I wanted the job. And he said, how many can you sell in a day? And I said, 100. And he said, fine. If you sell 99, I'll pay you nothing. If you sell 100, I'll pay you 50 quid. So 50 quid in 1984 in Leeds was, well, rent was 13 quid, beer was 50p a pint, and fags were a quid. So, you know, 50 quid you could yeah. really comfortably live on. But 100 sales in a day, you know, it was, I mean, it was more than anyone had done. And, uh, I mean, there were nights when I was out in Wakefield at sort of 10 o'clock at night, bashing on people's doors and getting the same person going, why am I going to buy... Some potatoes or some posh southern twat like you, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. But I would always get to the 100 and I'd always get my 50 quid. Then I went and did my law exams and uh, then I failed my bar exams. And I was in Tarifa in southern Spain, windsurfing with my new girlfriend. And who I ended up marrying. And uh, I thought, I've got a choice. I can either stay here and perfect my car jibe. Or I can go back and resit my bar exams. And I really didn't like the law because everyone who I was studying with was so much cleverer than me. And I just thought, how on earth? I didn't understand half of it. How on earth am I going to make a living out of this? You know, and it was one of those really humiliating moments where you think, you know, I've embarked on a path that's just led to a dead end. And, um, and I thought, you know, how am I going to face my dad who, had, you know, suffered me living with him while I did all this studying? So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go back and I'll sell potatoes door to door. So that's, that's basically how it started. You didn't retake the bar exam? No, I didn't. How did that go down? He thought that was a great idea, you know, because he, he was a surgeon, but he had a very entrepreneurial streak. I mean, he was slightly bonkers. He was always inventing operations, which was a good thing. Stick to that, Dad. But then he'd also decide to start businesses. And he, he liked VW camper vans. So one day he bought six VW camper vans and set up a business called Holidays on Wheels and then carried on being a full-time surgeon. <laughs> so he had these flipping camper vans parked up all over the place. 
anyway, that went bust. You then went back to potato selling, but it was this turning point, wasn't it? Because you were really good at it, but you needed other people to come in to make it a living well, because it, be, it started be clear, elevating. The only thing I was good at was selling potatoes. So, and Paul Cole was good at selling potatoes, so he made the ideal business partner. And there was another guy called Jules Allen who got involved, and very originally it was called Abel and Allen. Was it? Yeah. We started it with some traveller's checks that I stole off my older brother. And to give you an idea of the economics behind it, we spent 50 quid on a deposit on a warehouse, which wasn't a warehouse. I called it a warehouse, but I was a pretentious prat. It was the basement of someone's house in Catford, and it was £200 a month, the rent. We spent 50 quid on a set of scales, 30 quid on some plastic vans, uh, bags, and our first van was 300 quid, so of course that was really reliable. And then we bought a ton of potatoes, bagged them up at sort of four in the morning and went out selling them. But of course the model was, you have them every week, and if you're not at home, I'll leave them on the doorstep. And people trusted you with their keys, right? To actually... Later on. Later on, Later not on. straight on. No, no, no. I've got to inform you of some of the gems of the early stage because I think, you know, it's very important that your listeners kind of get the fact that not all businesses are, you know, founded by some incredibly carefully thought through plan. Sometimes they are just, let's just go and do this and let's do it for really little and let's see whether we can make a go of it and let's learn our lessons on the way. And that's really how we got going. And uh, it was a complete disaster. We doubled our product range and, and, and started selling eggs as well. So our strap line was stop breaking your arms and eggs. Let's face it, one of the most humiliating marketing lines of all time. I've still got a T-shirt with it written on it. <laughs> but we ended up, because we had this stupid weekly model, we ended up just selling just vast amounts of, of potatoes and eggs. Lorries full of them. My goodness. But the problem was that no one paid us. Right. And this was before Bill Gates had even got out of nappies, so everything was on paper. Can you imagine having 6,000 customers who all owe you money, all written down on little delivery books that you're giving out to random strangers who are your drivers that kind of go and collect the money and sort of decide how much they're going to give you at the end of the day? Yeah. It wasn't Not good. a perfected business model there. It wasn't great. No. no. So, yes, um, and I knew nothing about business, so... We built up huge amounts of debt without really, you know, there seemed to be money in the bank account, but that was just because we owed lots of people money, including these terribly unpleasant people in Worthing, which is the enforcement office of the Inland Revenue. So what we did was we paid our employees, but we didn't pay their tax or national insurance. And then Worthing caught on to this, and we owed them nine months' worth. And then these bastards came along and stuck a for sale sign outside of our house. <laughs> And I had My two little goodness. kids at the time, so that was all not so good. And, of course, I didn't limit the liability of the company, so I was personally liable for everything. No. And uh, then my lovely father-in-law came over to support us. You know, my kids were really young, and I don't think he wanted to change nappies. And he was a mobile oil executive, and so he'd much rather the idea of going down and seeing the business. And uh, he was a really great guy, and this business was complete mayhem. <laughs> And But he saw it as a distribution business. You know, right. he had yeah. oil that came into, had to be distributed to service yeah. stations. Yeah. And he had to figure out which service How station to, was profitable and which yeah. wasn't throughout South America. And I had a warehouse in Brixton 
and vans that went out to various different areas delivering boxes of organic veg by this point. And some of them made money and some of them didn't. And he thought of it like that, you see. And by the end of the week, God rest his soul, and uh, God bless him, he uh, loaned me the money that I was going to get from selling the house to pay the inland revenue with a deal that we put a um, charge on the house so that if it still went bust, he got his money back. On one condition, and that was that my wife came down to the warehouse. She was an accountant and started doing some accounts. <laughs> and then he very sweetly flew her sister over, who was also an accountant, and he was an accountant. So I had these three Ciparelli accountants in for two weeks. And it was brilliant. At the beginning of it, we thought we were 150,000 in debt. And at the end of it, we found out we were half a million in debt. It was not a good fortnight, not a, actually. No, no. But what I love about your story is that you didn't necessarily know where your passions lay. And through your curiosity and a, a sort of basically a chance, not a chance opportunity, a, an opportunity you took, you suddenly discovered this passion for organic vegetables. You discovered this whole new world, which is the complete opposite to law, completely the opposite to where you were going. How old were you when that actually happened? And and I ask because so many young people can feel very disheartened in life, and especially at the moment. Mm. And I feel that, you know, in this day and age, we all feel like, you know, it should all be planned and we should be following a path. And if you're not, it can, it can cause a lot of anxiety. Mm. Tell me about how you, I mean, was it just literally, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go and sell potatoes again? Or was it something that was, you sort of had a yearning, you sort of knew maybe you were an entrepreneur? I remember doing a careers sort of thing at school and they said I should be an architect. And I remember thinking, what a load of bollocks. I don't want to be an architect. And I remember thinking, oh, I think that Richard Branson fella's got it right, you know. So I sort of liked the idea of, you know, doing my own thing. I think that was clear quite early on. But I think, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I had this absolute passion for organic vegetables mm -hmm. and this was going to be my life mm -hmm. and I dedicated myself to that. It's just because it's not true. The reality of how it happened is we were selling, as I say, truckfuls of potatoes and a farmer came along to me called Bernard Gauvier and he said, do you want to sell some organic potatoes? And I said, you know, all potatoes are organic. This is 1989, so it's not anyone's buzzword at this point. And he said, well, why don't you ask the farmer you're getting them from what chemicals he uses on them? So I used to regularly go down to this farm in Kent and I said, can you show me what chemicals you use? And he pulled back this door of this enormous shed and there were a lot of skull and crossbones around. And so I was quite fascinated by the fact that Bernie was able to grow without these chemicals. And then it just became a fabulous sales line because you go out, you see, we're still, I was still selling on the door and you said, do you want yeah. the ones with chemicals or without? Yeah. And you'd explain on the doorstep. Yeah. how organic farming worked. You know, one gets the fuel off petrochemicals on the top of it. The other one gets it from the soil. Which do you want? And funnily enough, everyone asked for that. And I'll never forget, this is absolutely not a word of a lie. On the first day I went out with that sales pitch, we sold about 100 bags of organic spuds. We got back at the end of the day. We called them an OX, organic 10-pound bag of potatoes, in our little book. Paul turned around to me and said, by the way, what price did you sell them for? I said, I didn't mention a price. So the only question we were ever asked before is, how much are they? Yeah. And no one asked. They just said, oh, well, I'll try those. So yeah. that was then, the, that was that kind of, that chap in the bath, isn't it? It overflows and you go, oh, fucking, I'm on something here. 
<laughs> then, you know, the customers sort of got a bit bored of eating potatoes, I think. And they said, you know, can you get any other organic veg? And Bernard said, I'll throw a whole load in a box for you. So for you, it was this, not chance, but you went with something. You went with something and became more and more fascinated as yeah, time went really, on. Yeah, it was really nice. I mean, it was really, it was nice for us to be branching into other vegetables. Yeah. It was nice that they were quite cool in the way that they were grown. Yeah. The people who were growing them really felt that the chemical companies were taking over, that they were ruining the soil. They felt really sort of ripped off. They felt that yep. farming was being sold down the river by the chemical by the chemical companies, mm -hmm. Monsanto and ICI and all this kind of thing. So they had a real belief in it. And it was lovely translating that belief into what was, you know, it was really cool, our first boxes. And we called them the essential organic veg box. You'd look at them and you'd go, God, because it was all freshly harvested. It still is. But it was really unusual varieties and vegetables I didn't know about. I promise you, when we started selling celeriac, I could never come across it in my life. I rang Bernard and I said, what do you do with this thing that looks like a brain? <laughs> he said, oh, that's a celeriac, that is. I said, well, how'd you cook it? He said, oh, I'd be, you better go, Margaret, come and tell him how to cook the celeriac. And we was literally, they were scribbling it down. They were putting that note in the box. Just it was a bit of fun. It was really, it was really great. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you you change from what seems to be a path that you were going down very heavily. You know, you were going to do law. Your dad was a surgeon. You know, you're going, you're traveling this path and this conventional thing. And you did a U-turn. And I was interviewing Johnny Bowden for this podcast. And he was, in his words, the most terrible stockbroker. He said it was when he was at his most unhappiest but he was fascinated in retail and fashion, which ultimately then set himself free to live this path of happiness and fulfillment. And it strongly resonates what you're saying, recognizing that this wasn't what you were going to be doing. No, so, you know, my friends who were who had brains were, you know, getting up, putting their suits on and going to be pupil masters and trainee barristers or they were working at Pricewaterhouse or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I did feel a little bit, like it suited me more to be getting into my Toyota pickup truck at four o'clock in the morning and driving down to Covent Garden Market and being known as the posh twat, you know. And it was just, it was just a bit alternative. It was a bit, you know, I'm going to go my own way, you know. I and um, but you know, let's be clear. And you, you, you know, it was a train smash financially. It was a train smash. Mm -hmm. I was incredibly poor. Mm -hmm. I used to have dinner parties which consisted of egg and chips. I'd serve egg and chips to lots of people. Delicious, by the way. <laughs> but because I couldn't afford anything else, yeah. I used to live on yeah. the leftover veg was our food, yeah. you know, stuff that was off the warehouse floor. But that's what it takes. That's A what it takes. Bit, you, know, you know, I always say to people, do it, do it while you're young because you haven't got too many responsibilities. If you go and spend five years in a proper, proper job where they pay you, you're going to have a mortgage, you're going to be used to going on holiday. You're going to have a car you can't afford to drive anymore. You know, if you do it before you start all of that, you're, you're you won't notice it too much. Something so. else that springs to mind is this most, I don't know if you've seen it, the most brilliant video on YouTube of Jim Carrey's commencement speech. But he spoke of his father, who was a failed accountant, who wished he'd gone in, into comedy. And Jim says, you can fail at what you don't want, so you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like you're more of a guttural person than a planner. Mm. And and has that been your approach? And more of a failure. Yeah. I mean, I really can't <laughs> emphasise enough that for 15 years it was one consistent... Fail. Fail. I mean, just anything that went wrong so went wrong. So what kept wrong. you going then? Um, in those early days, it was just like there just wasn't an option. There were a lot of times we weren't very happy times. 
But, you know, you, you plod on, you plod on, you plod on, you learn a little bit, because I needed to learn an awful lot. And I was very lucky to have people stumble across me who joined in, who were just brilliant, is the only way to describe them. And, uh, you know, I like to think of it as sort of, you know, I had the idea to start up a rugby team, but I couldn't play. Yeah. You know, you know and people what go, oh, you know, it's an amazing thing you did. And I go, no, I didn't. I mean, that prop forward was incredible. And the fly half we had was absolutely amazing. And when they say, what position did you play? And I go, well, I didn't play. So I was just very blessed by people that came along. You know, my, my wife was a brilliant accountant. My father-in-law was a great guy. A chap called Alan Heeks was a brilliant businessman and was really into organic farming. And he mentored me and told me how to build a culture in a business. And then, you know, the greatest thing in my business career happened when his daughter, Ella, who was 23, came down to do some work experience. And, um, yeah, that was quite something. Because she ended up becoming pretty MD. important. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> And I remember when she finished right, her work she experience. Might be quite when she finished her work experience, she said, "Anyway, it's been lovely being here, you know. And I'm I'm off now, you know, with my first in PPE from Oxford." And I went, "Where are you going?" You know, I said, "No, you're not." <laughs> I said, "I'll see you on Monday morning." She said, "But but I haven't got anything." To say. I said, "We'll talk about it." <laughs> Actually, I think what she realised is, here's this guy Keith. He's a total loser. He's a really nice guy. He's up shit creek without a rudder. It'd be really nice to help him out. So let's tell everyone in the team that that's, this is how bad it is and that our mission is to get him not to be bust. And so we just shared it with everyone and suddenly it was this weight lifted and you know, things started going better and we had all the controls that showed that we were now making a thing called a profit, which was a really new thing to me. You know, A couple of nice things came along, the internet, Yes, that thing. <laughs> and I, again, I can when I want to be a pretentious prat. So, yeah, you know, I've sort of invented an internet business before the internet came along. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. but well, that's what we had. Yeah, I knew it was coming. You know, we... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, incredibly fortunate. Then I had a journalist friend of mine from my kid's primary school and uh, she was just an absolute honey and she saw how much we were struggling and how stressed I was and did a fantastic five-page article about us in the Saturday Times magazine, wow. which doubled the business overnight. You know, these are the days of answer machines. I mean, we were having to go and change the tape. There were so many people. Are you listening to this incredible journey, thinking, I wish I could do that, but don't quite know where to start? Then I wrote a book for you. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is the ultimate small business Bible, providing you with the guidance, support and insights I wish I'd had 20 years ago at the start of building my business journey with Not On The High Street. Think of me as your virtual mentor, guiding you along your journey as if I was sitting right next to you, holding your hand, recounting my own fears and failures, lessons to help you succeed on your path. Short bite-sized micro chapters filled with colour, creativity, oh, and its own product range. It really is a business book like no other. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out now. Head to holly.co slash book to buy your signed copy today. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. 
I wanted to talk to you about the farming industry, and I'm really not well educated in it, but I am really wholeheartedly fascinated, and I know those who are listening are as well. You are obviously now more of an expert, of course, and it's at the core of Abel and Cole's mission was to support British farmers and produce and growers. Um, but those who are listening, can you just tell us about what you think the state of the British farming industry was 30 years ago mm. and what it's like today? So uh, in the 90s in particular, it was uh, when Tesco's was really it had been Sainsbury's and then Tesco's came along under Terry Leahy and they did an incredible job about bringing prices down. And I'm not going to knock that. That made you know everyone's bills reduce and that was a great benefit to society. But they did it by uh, making sure that everyone had the taps turned, you know, squeezed on them. And um, so, you know, the big thing you heard from farmers that it was pretty unpleasant, you know, in some of the practices, all of the multiples, all the supermarkets used to keep prices down as low as possible were... It was bullying. Mm -hmm. uh, either you take this hit on prices, which is not what we agreed last week, or I won't pay for them. You know, what are you going to do? And by the way, just in case you don't recognise it, I buy all of your crop. Yeah. yeah this was the method yeah. that was being used. And so farmers were then forced to do things in the cheapest possible way, which often was with quite a strong impact on the environment, which they didn't have to pay for. Mm -hmm. And I think what came along with the organic movement is a reaction against that, a reaction against saying, we've got to do this differently. And I was so small that no one was interested in supplying me. So what I used to do as my sales pitch to the farmers was, look, I'll pay you on time. I'll agree prices with you in advance. I'll stick to those prices, whatever they are. And if you back me, I'm going to grow and your business is going to grow with me. Well, I mean, half of them just laughed at me and said, goodbye, I'm going back to the supermarket. But a few of them went, uh, you know. I'll give you a go. I'll give you a go. And we, uh, we did exactly that. You know, we paid at 30 days religiously. We arranged prices with them in advance. If the price went down the subsequent year, we still paid them the higher price. But at the same point, if the price went up, they let us have them for the lower mm -hmm. price. So mm -hmm. we got incredibly good quality produce because we were dealing directly with them the best. They'd make sure they wanted because they wanted ours to grow because they were getting paid fairly for it. Mm-hmm. We were able to just silly little things like return the crates to them that product arrived in to reduce costs. We just loads of things. We just worked very closely with originally, you know, five or six farmers. So back to your question, in those days, things were really, the squeeze was being put on farming. It was having a, quite a big environmental impact. I think the organic movement as a whole made supermarkets stop and think a little bit. I think it was a, a much bigger influence than the size of the market is to the Department of the Environment. I think the EU have had a lot to do with it as well. But there's always now looking for less intensive ways to farm is, 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 is the key of it. And alongside that, people care a little bit more about what mm -hmm. they eat in lots Certainly. of sectors of society. And they, they care about where stuff comes from. They care about its environmental impact. But I think, you know, when I, I, when I think back to knowing Abel and Cole, really when you started marketing it to people, you know, the thing that came across for me is the fact that you brought to life the fact that my vegetables were coming from the farm. Mm. Whereas before, in a way, this was invisible. Mm. You know, you would just go to the supermarket, robotically pick up whatever perfect 
vegetable it was yeah. at the time. And I'm going back. I know now we yeah, can yeah. talk about wonky veg, but it's it's actually you were bringing those stories that, by the way, your fruit and veg come from the ground. Did you know that? From yeah. farms? And sort of, you know, I mean, there was there, there were friends of mine who used to get delivery and they say, I bet you anything at the end of your line, when you finish putting the veg in, there's someone there sprinkling mud over it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect mud. I said, I said, that's a brilliant idea. Um <laughs> Yeah, we were putting a face to it. And, you see, the other thing is, because we were actually having in interaction, you know, just human interaction with the people who are growing it, they were able, you know, you were able to say, what's that heap of carrots over there? Oh, they're the ones the supermarkets don't want. Why not? Oh, because they have to be within this grade and that size. They've got to be exactly the same size. We go, could we get a better price if we got the whole lot, you know, the whole crop? because that's going to save you a lot of money and we can pass that on to our customers. Yeah, of course. And then you say to the customers, do you want this stuff chucked out or do you want to actually eat it? You know, mm. and the customers, so the customers were behind it as well. Yeah. They were supportive of it because you're just telling it to them as you yeah. see it. And I think what Abel and Cole did was it got hold of real kind of common sense customers. And in the early days, those first sort of five, 10,000 pioneer customers, I think they were the real mavens. I think they were the ones that went out there and really told it as they were hearing it. And mm. I think that's why it spread to be yeah. so popular. Obviously, now we have the benefits of social media. So we're connected now to where our food comes from far mm. more. And I've just started actually following a few farmers, thanks to discovering them from Abel's social. Mm. Farmer Ben Andrews is mm. very inspirational. Mm. He's such a joy to see where the food comes from, amount of sheer hard work mm. and care that goes into growing what we consume but caring for an entire industry mm. what do you foresee the future is of this industry well you know i mean i'm i'm hopeful that with the advance of social media and with people sort of talking a little bit more i mean it's like it's really interesting now you go to a restaurant and you see a lot of people photographing their food don't you yes and uh, you know i think it's slightly ridiculous because i'm an old fuddy-duddy but you know it's showing that people really care about what they eat and food's a really important part of life. It's like sleep. You know, if you don't get the right food inside you, you just, you don't, you don't feel great. And, uh, and I think that people care about where their food comes from. Having gone through the 70s and 80s, which was probably a good thing, where our food bill as a proportion of our overall spend plummeted, Yes. I'd like to see that rise again, yes. particularly yep. in the cheapest bit of it, which is ingredients. I mean... If you get an Abel and Cole veg box and you cook a few meals from it, it's unbelievably cheap way of eating. You know, that's one delivery pizza and you've got four meals out of it. Mm. So I hope that people start realising that there's a, there's a lot of joy to be had in prepping your own food, knowing where it comes from and eating healthily. Just to clarify, though, because I think what we're seeing now in business about doing good within your business. Mm. Now, again, you did so many things before mm. any of us realised any of this. But And I know you didn't necessarily set it up for the good, but ultimately that is what happened. Tell me about the difference between the way that you consumed as a consumer Abel and Cole's vegetables compared to the supermarkets. I'm going to answer this in a fairly obtuse way, but competing against Tesco's and Sainsbury's in the 90s when you had a budget of zero was, you know, unbelievably tough. So the business model that we had, remember, was we're going to choose what you eat. We're going to choose the delivery day on which you get it. It's going to be slightly more expensive than you get in a supermarket. So come buy from us, <laughs> you know. 
Oh, and you've got to have it every week. Do you know what I mean? It was a totally absurd proposition, yes, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. that is the truth, yeah. and it was absurd. There's no wonder we never got a single investor. We had to really think, come on, you know, I'd much rather buy from this little business, you know, than from those bastards there. So we got involved in things like picking up Tesco's bags that littered all the streets and sending them back to Sir Terry Leahy and saying, dear Mr. Leahy, we found this bag on the River Wandle and we thought you might like it back. Um, and then we'd sort of tell our customers to do the same thing. Now, what you're not saying there is, look at these littering, vandalous, you know, environmentally destructive big corporations. You're not knocking the competition. You're just having a little mm -hmm. bit of a laugh with it. We just did a lot of really fun things. Mm. So we had leftover vegetables at the end of the week and, and rotten vegetables that we needed to get rid of. So we contacted London Zoo and they loved having our organic veg. And so then we'd say that, you know, the hippos particularly liked the cabbages. And obviously the cliche was that the bananas went to the monkeys, you know. And yeah. we were writing about it in our yeah. silly little newsletter because this was before yes. social media. Yes. People used to go, oh, God, Keith, I mean, you're so green. It's just marvellous. And I could always sit there and go, yeah, thanks so much. But we needed to put a tap in to clean our vans and it was going to cost a fortune to plumb it. But when they were in this warehouse, all the water used to pour off the roof into a particular point. So we found an old drum, put it at the bottom of it and used it to clean our vans. And then, you know, probably Ella came up with the idea of saying, we're cleaning our vans with, with caught rainwater because it's a great idea. We ran vans on on vegetable oil back in, in, you know, when, you know, Tony Blair came down to visit us. You know, interestingly, he came down with six Range Rovers to have this <laughs> photograph taken in, right in Brixton in front of our, our van, which said, you know, uh, you know, green on the outside and green on the inside. So all these little things mm. were encouraging customers away from the big competition. And I think making big business sort of think... God, you know, that's annoying. You know, we need to do that. You take me back because I got those newsletters. I told those stories to other people who then became your customer. And this is the thing for those who are listening is actually we forget it's these incredibly cheap, clever, yeah. entrepreneurial ways. And you're doing it for money. You're doing it because you can't afford PR. You yeah. can't afford marketing. No. But you're just utilising the journey that you were on, spinning everything into how can this come Absolutely back to everybody. us? So, you know, we didn't air freight any veg. Now, first of all, because it was very difficult to be sure of the certification of something coming in from Thailand. Um, but secondly, because we just thought it was, you know, it was far too expensive to put in a box that we were selling for nine quid at the time. But thirdly, we just started thinking, hold on, this is crazy. I mean, it is crazy, crazy. that you have, I mean... you have literally jumbo jets flying across the world full of snap peas. So we came up with this logo and said, we never air freight. Well, I mean, of course, this had Waitrose up in arms. They're going, how can we do this? Can we have a no air freight? So they couldn't do it. Yeah. Now, suddenly, you know, The Guardian caught up on this and gave us a big interview and put us on the front page of their G2 section, calling it Perfect Delivery, and where we were able just to list out all of oh. these little tiny things that we were doing. And as you say, it's free publicity. It gives your customers something to talk about. I remember going to some lunch 
and Justin King was there. Justin King was the CEO of Sainsbury's. And he sat down next to me. He said, you've got a bloody clever business. And I said, I'll never forget <laughs> seeing him. How the fuck do you know about my business? And yeah. he's saying, you know, what you're doing there, he said, we can't do that. And I was going, you're discussing what we're doing. Well, of course, because we're just really annoying them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's brilliant. Well, not when you're little, away. you can do it. You know, yeah. when, you, when, you, when you get big, oh, you've got to have a board meeting about that. Oh, I'm not sure about that. And we better speak to and lawyers. And that is the you know? power. The moment you lose that superpower, you start to then become like everybody else. Mm. You have all of the shackles. And so it is this maintaining this confidence to stay nimble, to mm. stay small, be smart, because you can scale actually without having an empire. Yeah. We you used to say, say no to M&Ms, meetings and managers, <laughs> you know. Tell me, um, I was interviewing Rowan from Naked Wines. Not necessarily did he start the business to do good, but funny enough, his business did a lot of good. Fantastic stories about the wine growers he helped. Similarly, tell me about what you've seen through Abel and Cole. You must have changed the lives of some of the farmers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, all to everyone's advantage. So there's two that spring to mind. One was we were really struggling to get English organic apples. So we were only able to get them up from New Zealand by boat. There just weren't enough. And so, you know, we had an apple grower come to us and say, I can't afford the trees. And we went, brilliant. We'll finance the trees. Um, you pay us back with apples. And so it, and he, he, we financed him for five years. Well, you know, he thinks the sun shines out. But for us, it was blowing marvellous. Great yeah. apples, paid back. We, we had a bit of money by then. And the other one that springs to mind, which is a lovely story, and, and one where, you know, again, this guy is so passionate about how much we helped him. But actually, he helped us enormously. And it was a, uh, we were trying to get uh, organic milk. And we were having to buy it from Express Dairy in Covent Garden. And it was arriving to us with sometimes as little as four days' life on it. And it wasn't lasting very long. And this chap came to see me and uh, he said, you know, I'm going to have to slaughter my cows tomorrow. They've been in the family for 180 years. And I said, what on earth are you going to do that for? And uh, he said, because no one wants to buy Guernsey milk because it's, it's expensive. And the reason it's expensive is because it's very rich, creamy milk. And I said, well, that's fantastic. You know, we'll take that. And uh, we now take all his milk and his herds expanded and... You know, he's a happy guy and sleeps well at night and his son's taken over the business. But, of course, we now sell loads of milk and it's because it's absolutely fantastic milk. It's not homogenised, so it's the cream on the top of it. Do you see how it's, mm. it was, It was you know, symbiotic, I think mm. the Americans would say. And mm. I think we tried to do that with all sorts of areas of the business. You know, going mm. right back, I needed my team to help me out. They helped me out. They got a few beers bought for them on Friday night. They got paid well. They got respected. They got listened to. They became a part of the business. They got promoted within the business. It's quite incredible because I actually just think the consumer sees right through that. And that's why they back these types of businesses. Mm. Because, you know, 99% of our decisions as human beings are emotional. Mm. Quite frankly, not in the high street, Naked Wines, Abel & Cole, they started just so organically mm because they just went straight to the heart of the customer and said, you know what, you're a human being, I'm a human being. You don't need to yeah. talk to me in a certain way. Just yeah. talk to me as a real human being. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's anything to be, to be scared of. So 
30 years ago, you founded Abel and Cole. Mm. And now we see this rise in subscription boxes, mm. which according to a report by the Royal Mail, the subscription box market looks to be set to reach £1 billion in 2022 in the UK, with 27.4% of the UK consumers now signed up to a subscription box service. And actually, it goes to incredible over 50% between 25 and 34-year-olds. So you were really ahead of your curve. And the the idea, I mean, you must have been one of the first subscription boxes yeah, I in never, I, ne- I didn't, you know, was, I mean, well, I, wasn't I, even probably... I never even used the word subscription. No, no, I, I, yeah. I was sort of quite loath to, because it felt to me like one of those magazines that you had to get every single month, whether you, you know, because <laughs> you could stop whenever you wanted to. Yes. Yeah, but as I say, you know, why did we do it? Because if you're knocking on doors in camp for flogging things, it's much better if customers buy off you every week, because then you don't have to go back and sell to them the following week. And, you know, to people trying to start out, they'll come up with things that in the future people will go, oh, God, you're so clever. And you go, you know, it was because we needed to be. But this is you know. what I love about this podcast is because you're being honest there. Yeah. That whole using that opportunity that then becomes something that we can actually have a wonderful mm. name for, like mm. marketplace, like subscription model. Yeah. Tell me, though, now you can use that word. Tell me about what you now know that you would give advice to, to people who are looking at this area. So I know a lot of small businesses who sort of think, Oh, I'm just going to go into the subscription model now. Mm, you know, mm. someone's going to buy something and I'm yeah. just going to make that now a monthly thing that they'll yeah. want. Well, it's staggering seeing how some some businesses have done and how quickly they're doing. And there's one at the moment called Small, which does detergents. And I mean, it's just sales are going skyrocketing because it's cheaper than you get anywhere else. And it's a bloody bore lugging home detergents, isn't yes, it? And you know yes, roughly how much yes. you use. And so what do I know? I know an awful lot about it through, you know, all the mistakes that we've made. The key to it is always that you've got to have a product that is a really good, strong product. You know, that's a starting point, isn't it? It has to be. Otherwise, yeah. people just get fed up and they want to stop. And then uh, I think you have to get people to get used to it. And it's quite difficult to get used to it to start with. So uh, at Able & Cole, we introduced a thing called the nursery program because they were nursery customers. We treated them like little kids, you know. And they hadn't really had this before, and we needed just to make them, you know, you drop your kid off at nursery school. It was a bit scary to start with. So we needed to make sure those first few months were really sort of, you know, that's when the little gifts came along and little things to make it easier. And, you know, we do it with Freddie's flowers. We do little gifts of vases and secateurs and things like that. It'll help the customer on their journey before they get used to it. So those first few months were absolutely critical. Yeah, what else? I think another problem with subscription companies is that they tend to be, they undersell themselves. Do you know what I mean by underselling? So they go, oh, well, you know, maybe they don't want it every week. Maybe they should have it every month, every year, every six months. And so, you know, and I've seen a lot of subscription companies fail and become gifting companies, but they didn't really want to be. And that's because they were too scared of their product. They think, oh, people aren't going to want to buy this regularly, but they are. Um, so don't be scared of the product, you know. Be bold. That there is a necessity with a subscription model about that understanding of the customer, that communication. Oh yeah, and rule number absolute one: don't bore your customers. You know, you've got to keep it fresh. You've got to keep it interesting. You know, much to the hilarity of everyone here, I'm constantly relating everything back to dating. But you know, if you want to keep that customer, you've got to keep it fresh. Yeah, and uh, if it starts being Tuesday night in front of Coronation Street, they're going to go looking over their shoulder. 
quite soon. Every week's got to be something really... God, that's so clever. Oh, I love what they've done there. So is that harder than... So, so, because I was just relating that to actually, isn't it just a good lesson to keep a customer? It's far cheaper than and acquiring one. Yeah. So every business, whether you're subscription or yeah, not... Yeah should actually try to not be having curry and coronation street. Yeah. yeah? That's that's, yeah. that's the, yeah. the basis. Don't be so boring. Way. Don't be so boring. Yeah. But actually on a subscription model, the way that works, that's quite a pressure though. If that is the, because you yeah, are Yeah, and again, I would argue don't corporatize it. In other words, you know, if you haven't got a genuinely good idea, don't bother doing it. You know, don't feel that you have to, you know. Yes. It's not, oh my God, I'll put something free in the box every week. You don't need to do that. And of course, you know, the other thing we haven't really discussed is, you know, which was the big thing that Alan Heeks taught me way back when, is that if you spend a lot of time building the culture of your business so that everyone's involved, then you've got a ideas manufacturing machine. I mean, you wander around these offices here, you'll mm. see so much enthusiasm mm. oh, and I felt talent it the and, I you know, in. buzz, yep. and it's just a great place to work. I love yeah. being here. Yeah. And so if you create the right culture, then I'd argue that your business is always buzzing, you know? Yeah. Well, um, you certainly could feel it when we, we walked in here. It's all these little points that are coming back to me as I mm. speak to you about how clever it was and how you just told the story of the journey actually you and the group of people that worked with you were on. Mm. Things such as, I always remember how you would push things forward in terms of environmental. And I was astounded at this innovative packaging that mm. I received. I think it was called Wool cool boxes mm. which are lined with british sheep wool that had been needle felted to produce a fleecy sort of insulation material mm. which keeps the contents below a temperature of five degrees centigrade for at least 24 hours and it's so much more effective than polystyrene can you just tell me about how that manufactured itself in your offices what these what that's genius that isn't it yeah i mean it is i mean that's genius yeah. uh, i'll tell you how that how that happened so i'm gonna get into my washerwoman i had another really me. really clever really clever uh woman working for me called steph and steph was put in charge of the one of the most complicated projects that avon cole did which is you know you have fifty thousand customers being delivered to out of 300 vans in 10 depots and you've got to route it so that everyone gets their order and there's two and a half thousand that products. Scares them. You know, this is a cardo, but without any finance, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we had to make sure that you loaded a van in the reverse order to which it was going to be delivered. So the first customer's on the top, the last one's on the bottom. And some of them are getting big boxes and some of them are getting small boxes and some of them are getting cool boxes, right? Now, so then we learnt this word called tessellate, which is that different sized boxes all mixed together like a Rubik's Cube on a big pallet. But the problem was the polystyrene box didn't fit. So we went, well, polystyrene's horrible anyway. Customers hate it. It breaks when they return it to us. It's just yuck. So let's have a look for something else. And then we had a look and along came this brilliant company doing wool cool. So we put the wool cool inside our boxes, which is exactly the same size as our other boxes. So suddenly everything could tessellate. So suddenly you could load all your vans incredibly efficiently with all sorts of different products, all of which is kept at the right temperature, delivered to in the order in which you deliver it. That's how that came about. And the innovation, the striving for innovation? I think the culture of the business was to, uh, and again, I really must emphasize, it wasn't set up by me alone. It was set up by the very early team 
which is we wanted to work cooperatively to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And so we set up brilliant mechanisms for solving problems because everyone was involved. So you'd hear from the driver what problems he was experiencing and what feedback he was getting from customers right the way from the customer service team, what they were hearing. And you get thematic problems, you know, which people wanted to solve. And one of the big things which we recognize very early on is that it's a real bore when you come back from, you know, let me name another supermarket, um, Waitrose or Morrison's and you unpack your shopping and you've got a black bin liner full of plastic. I mean, Mm -hmm. just the inconvenience of having to Mm -hmm. do it up and take it outside, apart from thinking, where the hell does all this stuff go? So there was a big project to say, what can we do to just eliminate it? Well, of course, we're halfway there because all the vegetables loose in a box. Yep. Clever. Very (laughs) genius, actually. I mean, that's, that's proper genius, that is. But, you know, we were able to work on biodegradable packaging and, you know, which took quite a few experiments. I remember just getting potato starch bags and they basically started to biodegrade in the warehouse. (laughs) You're like, bit too soon. Bit too soon. (laughs) Um, Do you see it's sort of born out of kind of necessity. Sometimes it's born out of cost saving. Yeah. Because all of these things make you much more efficient. You're a much more efficient business if you're retaining customers and you're going to retain more customers. You've got interesting things to show them. There's only so much you can talk about broccoli, so let's talk about <laughs> packaging. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're using every single bit, a little bit like not leaving leftover vegetables. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're using every single bit How to cook it. your leftovers. Yeah. You know, when we started making soup, it was made out of our leftover veg because we didn't want to throw it out. So yeah. then it ended up being incredibly cheap soup that was absolutely delicious and cost us nothing. Genius again. You know. You know. But out of necessity, do yeah, you see? Yeah. I think that happened because the people taking away our waste wanted to increase our prices and so someone sort of went, soup. this is ridiculous. You know, how can we have that happen? You know. <laughs> but, you know, your journey, Keith, I know, has actually been, you know, over 30 years old and in that time have now left the business twice. But at one point, 2010, I think it was, you were asked to go back in when it was suffering terrible losses no, there's a slight mix-up in numbers there. So it had sales had gone back, but importantly, the profits had gone from about 3.4 million down to 1.5 million, and it had quite a lot of debt in it. So it was having trouble servicing its debt. Hence, I was asked by the debt provider to go back in. It's just what's happened with Debenhams. Right. So the people with the debt have said, actually, we're taking over the company now, and you can go in and run it. And How did um, that feel? I remember thinking... I'd had a great deal of difficulty after selling the business because I'd sat on the board and, you know, it wasn't mine anymore. And and I find it very difficult, other people making decisions which I disagree with. Uh, and it just, I used to go in once a month and just sort of get upset and then get on with the rest of my life. So when someone said, would you go back, would you meet the people who want you to go back and take it over? My immediate answer was, no, I don't think so. It's not a happy place for me now. It's not a happy memory. I want to move on and do something else. But some very nice people said, look, you know, you don't know what you're talking about because you're incredibly stupid. Do remind yourself of that. And I went, yeah, okay, fair enough. And they said, go and have breakfast with him. So I went, all right, I'll go and have breakfast. And I remember going to this breakfast and thinking, right, I'm going to negotiate really hard here. And I thought, you know, I'm dealing with this city banker and I'm not going to like him at all. And... And in fact, he was a really nice guy whose wife had been a customer for years. And uh, he said, you know, if you went back there, what would you do? And I said, well, what do you think I should do? He said, well, my wife says the boxes aren't, aren't as good as they used to be. And I said, yeah, I agree with her. I'd make the boxes a bit better. And uh, then he just gave me this offer that I really just couldn't refuse. 
and it was way better than I'd thought of my hardest point of negotiation. So I kept that to yourself. I capitulated straight away. But remember, this was 2008, right. 2009, yeah. actually. And um, the banks had enormous numbers of businesses that they needed to find a home for. And in fact, the bank in question did very well out of it. They got all of their money back and a profit because we did quite straightforwardly turn it around. And uh, it, it was very liberating uh, to be going back to a business you knew really well without feeling that your entire future was dependent on every decision that you made. In other words, I now owned a car and I bought a house and I had a pension, you know, whereas before I had nothing. Mm -hmm. I used to, you know, I remember the people who persuaded me to sell it said, you are one food scare away from bankruptcy. You know, <laughs> so going back there with all of that sorted out was really liberating. It was just kind of like, well, I know what we need to do here, chaps, you know, and do you all agree? And everyone did. And so we were able to, I describe it as the wheels have been taken off. We very quickly put them back on, but we gave them slightly better grip and tuned the engine a bit more. And sales went in 12 months from 27 million to 45 million. And wow. profits went from just over one to over four and a half. So that was very satisfying. But now you're out of Abel and Cole. Mm. You, we're sitting in Freddie's Flowers HQ. Mm. Can you tell me what it's like to be on the other side now? Well, you know, I don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and do all the bloody work, which is great. You know, Freddie phoned me up and Ted and I were looking to do something. And Freddie rang me up and said... Uh, you know what you did with the vegetables to start off with? What about we did it with flowers? And I remember just thinking straight away, I said, Freddie, you know, that is genius. That's a brilliant idea. He said, well, how am I going to get started? And I said, okay, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll lend you 10 grand and you go and buy some flowers in Covent Garden Market and go and knock on some doors and see if you can sell it. But make a note, will you, of what they say and how many doors you knock on, how many customers you get. So he went, you're all right, you know, and what shall I use for a van? I said, get yourself a milk float. So the milk float. So I then, so then, I, this is great. I phoned up a lawyer and I said, um, "I want to uh, invest ten grand in this business, and um, you know, with a view to potentially investing some more in the future." And I got this thing back from him saying an estimate of fees that was was ten thousand pounds plus VAT. So I said, "So I said, Freddie, this is how we're going to do the legals. You're going to send me an email saying, Dear Keith, thanks for the ten grand. I'll try and pay you back.'" <laughs> so. Freddie did exactly that. He's doing all the hard work. That's a big tick for me. I don't have any of the responsibility, you know. Ted's running the business with him and mentoring him on all the complicated stuff. And I just get to do the fun bit, really. Turn up here when I want to. I can help in its strategic direction. I can support people who are having difficulties. I meet lots of young business people coming here with all sorts of mad ideas because they want to get started. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, um, and for anyone who's listening, we interviewed Freddie on his own podcast on Conversations of Inspiration, so you can hear his full story. But do you feel that, because I've always, I've never had a single mentor, for instance. You know, I always felt that there were different people at different stages mm. of growing not on the high street mm. that were very, very useful and could see me through. Obviously, you have had this 
unbelievably paralleled um, experience that's very unique. You know, there you were selling on doorsteps. Mm. There's Freddie selling on doorsteps. Mm. You put him through his paces. You, he showed mm. you that he could do that mm, and, absolutely. and actually work his behind off. And, yeah. and so you could put your money in yeah, someone exactly. trusted. Yeah. Do you think that that is good advice to others to try and find someone who's had a paralleled experience or the idea of mentorship? Did you have a mentor? Well, as I mentioned a couple of them. Yes. I mean, I have Peter Cipparelli was very influential mentor and Alan Heeks was very influential. But then, you know, with me, I considered my other mentors to have been all the people that work with me, you know, because they, they, they guide you and help you. And so I don't think it necessarily needs to be a seasoned old hack who's done it all before. I think just, you know, learning the art of listening, what different personality types you have within your team. And uh, let's go back to rugby again. You know, you can't be a prop forward and a winger and a scrum half. You can't. No one is. But you're one of them. And the real trick, I think, to business is figuring out who's good at what and then letting them get on and be good at it. And I can't bear the arrogance sometimes of business founders who sort of sit there and go, well, you know, my way of doing it is this, that and the other and attention to detail and tenacity and it's all about me, you know. Actually, you know, it's not. It's all about your team mm. doing it together and DNA. you just happen to be able to sit on a pedestal and take all the praise. But, you know, your mentors are the people you're working with anyway. That's what oh, I think. That is really interesting. So we're coming to the end of this interview and the journey that you've taken with Abel and Cole and your journey has definitely had the highs and lows. Mm. Can you tell me about what you feel one of your greatest lows has been? Well, I told you about the inland revenue. That was pretty horrific. I mean, I think there was just this sort of groundhog day of calamity that went on for about 15 years where it really did get you down. You know, early on, we had to handball everything off lorries and eventually we saved up enough money to buy a forklift truck that didn't break every, you know, because we could only afford to buy second-hand ones. Now, I remember this thing arriving was just like, I don't have to go to the chiropractor every week anymore, you know. And on the second week, someone came out to the guy looking after the warehouse and said, oh, can I borrow your forklift truck? And, of course, being an Abel and Kohler, he went, yeah, of course you can, mate. The bloke jumped on it, drove it around the corner onto his lorry and drove off with it. Oh, <laughs> I, remember, I remember wanting to cry that morning. So there were lots of times like that where you just wanted to cry. I mean, the first van driver we got finished his day's work, left the van with the keys, took all the money. The second van driver we got didn't even drop the van back. <laughs> you know, I mean, there were times when you just thought, the world is trying to tell me something. What am I doing here? You know. And the highs? Well, once I hired the right people, uh, it was all one big high. Do you take a lot of enjoyment in watching people succeed? Oh, it's just tremendous, you know. And, I mean, dear old Ella became the managing director. And, you know, when I sold the business... How old the, was she? She was 23. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, let's be clear. She was born with a business brain. This so naturally business-minded, just the cleverest person. And just watching her work was such a delight. When we sold the business the second time around, there were, you know, 14 people participated in the success. And, you know, I, we all went out and had a very late night that day. And uh, that was hysterical. And the following morning, we had to announce it to the to the whole team who all knew that what was going on. Yeah. 
And dear old Ted, who you'll see here, hadn't actually been to bed and um, was sort of standing there swaying with two people propping him up. And I remember the fact that it was greeted by everyone there with, well done, you know, congratulations, this is great. You know, it was really nice, you know. It's been, it's, it's a really nice way to make a living. And um, someone who's inspired you that you think I could interview on this podcast. Oh, God. Oh, let's see. I really like the Joseph boys. They're fantastic. I don't think you've spoken to them. I haven't. They're I super have nice met, guys. I've they're, met they're, them. But... They're, 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 again, you know, they're twins. They're, but one of them's good at one thing and the other one's good at the other thing. And they're genius if they figured out who was good at what. And they say, you know, well, once we figured out that actually he should probably design the damn things and I should probably count them, you know. <laughs> and they've got a great business. They're really nice guys. And they've done it in such a nice way. Oh, you've, yeah, that's you know. a great recommendation. Yeah. Well, Keith, I can't thank you enough for bringing what I, I just wanted to use the word real you've really told your story and couldn't have told us more how you had nothing to do with all of this but except for me when I sit opposite you you know you took that u-turn from being a lawyer to being Mr Abel and Cole and you did that you showed us through your story that there is this uniqueness whether it's not what you did, but how you galvanise people around you to build something that really has turned people's lives around or helped people without Abel and Cole that they wouldn't have ever been in the situations that they're in. And always putting yourself sort of at the bottom of the list. It's been just one of those wonderful moments. And I, I remember now why at our lunch I was laughing so hard well, because you're, you're a joy and you you have an epic story and I'm so proud that this epic story will sit on this library and I just thank you so so much Pleasure. for your time I end this interview by asking our guests to read out a letter that they prepared to their no, younger you selves you, you pester and bully them into writing I, I well I do remind them when yes. they need reminding and 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 just Once, say twice three yeah, four just five in times. case I yeah. get a feeling that maybe they're that not very they're good not going do, to be doing, writing doing it <clears throat> and I just you know kindly send them a couple of texts and just ask them to do that so right. I'm wondering if I can leave the end of um this podcast to you Keith uh let me see if I can find I did scribble something down uh, where is it? Here we go. Dear Keith, it's 30 years in the future and I've been asked to write to you with some advice. One thing deep down that you won't believe for one second is that the business hasn't gone bust. This is no thanks to you, but hey-ho, here's some advice. The problem is that knowing you rather well, age 23, I know the one bit of advice I give you will be ignored. And of course, that advice is listen to other people's advice. The paradox is that most of the advice you're getting quite rationally right now is when are you going to stop messing about and get a proper job? Don't listen to that advice, but try listening to all of the other advice you get. And that's quite confusing, isn't it? Uh, remember that life is precious in the moment and that moment is more important than tomorrow. When it's five in the morning and more has already gone wrong than in last night's nightmares, remind yourself what mum had written up on the wall in the kitchen Cheer up, things could be worse, so I cheered up. Sure enough, things got worse. Some of the real howling disasters that currently make you think you're going to pass out with stress make great comic material in the future. 
when you're allowed to take all the credit for the success made by those around you who finally managed to get you to shut up and let them get on with the business without your interfering. Uh, one final thing, young man. When your brother gives you a box with a TV screen on it in about 1992 and tells you it's got 30, 40 megabytes of hard drive, learn to use it. Oh, and if this groundhog email loop you too get to have your money, Moon, uh, don't be a prick for too long. I think we all need a Keith in our business. And I really, really envy Freddie at the moment because when I met you the first time and followed Abel and Cole and heard this personality coming through your business, was lucky enough to meet you one time, now a second time. You are an extraordinary person and your humbleness makes you absolutely so likeable because you are a super clever guy and very inspiring. Well, thanks. So thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. Great stuff. If you enjoyed my conversation with Keith Abel, I'd love to suggest listening to my chat with Yo Valley CEO, Tim Mead. You can find all my past episodes by searching Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.